Welcome to another episode of Wild Law Pod. My very special guest today is Devin O'Connell. Devin is a partner at Pinson Film in Laramie. Devin served as the 100th president of the Wyoming State Bar, and she is also a past president of the Wyoming Trial Lawyers Association. She is a current commissioner on the Judicial Nominating Commission. Her practice focuses on mediation, family law, civil litigation, and a general civil practice. Devin is also a certified 500-hour yoga instructor and teaches yoga in Laramie and at legal events and conferences around the state. Today, we'll be visiting about the ethics of why lawyers should consider starting a mindfulness practice and how to start a mindfulness practice. The first half of the episode is focused more on the why, and the second half is focused more on the how. So the episode can easily be listened to in two parts. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Devin. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Me too. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we finally got a little day without um, some snow, but it's still a hurricane winds. How was the drive over? It was just, it was absolutely fine. It's the same drive that everyone knows from Laramie to Cheyenne. So <laughs> it was just fine. Right on. Well, I think first, uh, maybe we could just start uh, with a little like, three-minute meditation, can you do a little guided meditation so that people can kind of get a taste of what we're talking about? Absolutely. I, um, I chose some meditations for anxiety and gratitude, um, and I, I'll do both of them today, but let's start with anxiety, just to sort of um, a short one about just calming down the heart. So when you meditate, find a comfortable seat uh, that may be even laying down and feel real secure and comfortable where you're sitting. So feel rooted, feel comfortable, feel safe so that you're sitting somewhere that you can actually focus not on how uncomfortable you are, but what is happening in your body. And once you're settled, close your eyes or, or have a nice soft gaze at something. Let all the breath exhale. Let everything exit from your lungs. Take a deep breath in through the nose, nice and deep. And let that exhale come out through the mouth. Let's make that breath more intentional. Take an inhale for the count of four. Exhale for the count of five. One beat longer. Inhale for the count of four. Exhale for the count of five. Now as we meditate here, notice that this breath is staying slow and steady. Four in, five out. Nice and slow. Now as you inhale, imagine that you are breathing in Peace, breathing in calmness, breathing in strength. As you exhale, release with that exhale, anxiety, stress, and worry. Inhale, peace and calm. Exhale, anxiety and stress. Now, as you are 
inhaling and exhaling. There's nothing that you need to worry about right now in this present moment. All that matters is the inhale and the exhale. If something comes up other than inhale peace and calm, exhale stress and anxiety, just acknowledge what comes up and then exhale it out. No judgment, no perfection. Just inhale, peace, calm. Exhale, stress, anxiety, and worry. Now, as you feel that exhale, see if you can manifest anxiety slipping away with each exhale. There's a release, a softening. If your mind drifts to a feeling of worry, again, be mindful of that drift, but don't judge it or chastise it. Just let it go. Acknowledge it, notice it, without judgment, without angst, without the desire to end the meditation because you're not doing it right. Just let it go. Bring your attention back to the inhale for calm, peace, serenity, strength, exhaling, worry, anxiety, and stress. As you release the anxiety and stress, you begin to feel strong, you can handle life throwing anything at you. Notice in your body how you feel calmer as you sit and breathe. When you're ready, open your eyes and carry with you the feeling of relaxation throughout the day. That was excellent. How do you feel? I feel great. That was pretty short, um, but I picked a short one because I want I want people to know that there's no perfect way to do this. Even if you can fit in two minutes, that's better than no minutes. And I always enjoy the tying of the breath, you know, to a certain thought or goal and. I really like the idea of like filling with peace and calm and then, you know, using the out breath to move whatever it is that you're working on that day out of your system. I think that that's a, just an excellent way to, especially for the beginning meditator, because it gives you something to think about instead of what I think people are always afraid that they think mindfulness means I have to be able to think of nothing. Mm -hmm. And usually the first thing that you think of when you try and think of nothing is everything. So... I really, Absolutely. I really like that. When I first started, and I am no, I am not perfect at this. It is not, you know, there's not like a, an end point that you should aim for. But when I first started, it was nearly impossible. I mean, I would spend my meditation time with my to-do list, right? Here's what I have to do when I leave this meditation or my yoga or whatever. And so I had to force myself to just simply think, now I'm inhaling. 
Now I'm exhaling. I mean, even before you bring any intention to it of gratitude or, or anxiety or anything like that, it's even just inhaling and exhaling because you're present, whatever is happening right at the time, because that's the goal of mindfulness is just being here in the moment. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the different forms that that can take, you know, throughout the day, because it's not just, you know, sitting in full lotus, you know, concentrating on your breath. There's lots of opportunities throughout the day. I, um, some people, there, there's as many ways to meditate as there are people. Um, and what works for, what works for you and what works for others may be different, but I, um, I try to, I, I actually set a timer. Um, I find lawyers are so tied to our time, right? I mean, that is our stock and trade is what we, that's what we do. So a time, a timer is comforting to me. Now it's not to everybody. Um, sometimes that's a stressful thing for people. You need to meditate however long and whatever works for you works. But I like to set a timer. And when I'm feeling particularly untethered, like there's 9 million emails to answer and the phones are ringing off the hook and your clients are hurting um, and struggling and need something done now and you're behind. Um, just taking a couple minutes just to even sit in your office chair and plant both feet on the, on the ground, you can just meditate there. If you go for a walk, um, if, that, if your practice allows that, just walking. And I stress walking in silence, right? Don't, don't try to play your podcast or talk on the phone while you're, you know, while you're doing it. There's something gorgeous about uh, silence and just being able to sit in your own silence. And that is harder for me, at least, and for a lot of people than almost anything else. It's easy to close your eyes and sit there. It's easy to, not easy, but it, it's easier to do it. What I find to be really hard because I love to listen to books and podcasts and all of those things. It's really hard to sit in silence. I like music, you know, all those things. So sitting in silence for a couple of minutes in your office, you know, just in your office chair with um, both feet planted in a comfortable spot, um, or even I have a yoga mat in my office. Sometimes I just do a couple of sun salutations, um, which helps get me sort of drop me into something. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of ways going for a walk, even, um, <clears throat> going home for lunch and sitting in silence for a little while as you mindfully consume your lunch. Some of that is even meditative. And I think when I, when I think of it along those lines too, I tend to, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think one of the components is like doing one thing at a time. So you're basically, whatever you're doing, like if you're walking, that's what you're doing is walking. And you, you know, all of a sudden you have this shift in your brain where you become aware of everything, but you're not necessarily focused on anything except for, you know, being aware of the fact that you're walking, say, through a park or, mm -hmm. or something like that. And I also find the timer helpful because I like to have like a bell ring every five minutes because one of the things that I always worry about is how long have I been doing this? And so that distracts from my ability to concentrate on my breath or whatever else I'm working on that day. But the timer I find useful just because it tends to, it's like constraining. It's more like a free sensation. I can then focus because I'm not worried about other things. Mm -hmm. 
And I, um, I think I missed the point of your last question. Um, being free from distraction is kind of, is, is hard. It's a difficult thing as lawyers, but there are little things we can do to be able to focus on. Cause even if we're not meditating, we need to be able to focus on one thing at a time. Our culture is so obsessed with the multitask, right? The, the getting a bunch of stuff done, um, making sure that you're, you know, that all these things, all these balls are in the air. And as lawyers, we really need to be able to, when we're on the phone with the client, we need to be listening and focused on what the client is telling us. We shouldn't be having the emails ding and come up. You shouldn't be scrolling on social media when you're talking to your clients. You shouldn't be doing those things that are outside of what is happening. And mind, a, a strong mindfulness practice helps with that. It helps you focus on what you're doing and or the briefs that you're writing or, or what have you. And turning off some of those distractions or even, you know, shutting the door, um, muting your phone, putting the, you know, our phones have a do not disturb on it. Um, and really being mindful in, in what you're doing. Cause otherwise we're looking every time the email dings and you don't get anything done. And that harms a client for sure. Well, in one of my, and thankfully it hasn't happened in quite a while, but you know, just in the process of learning to be a lawyer, you know, like you said, you got to shut those things down and this still happens. It's very rare now, but I mean, I'll, It'll probably be towards the end of the day, so I'll be cleaning out my inbox and my email. And then there'll be a phone call that I wasn't ready for. And so I won't shut everything down on my computer. I'll just kind of fall into this conversation. And then, you know, an email will catch my eye. And then like five minutes later, I've been talking to a client. I literally have no idea what in the hell we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Because I was checking like the last few emails. I'm like, I'm glad it was like a benign conversation, but this is, this is bad. This is not how I should be practicing law. It's, it's, um, it's very true and it is unintentional. We don't mean to do it, um, but at least you noticed and came back to the conversation. And that's the whole point. When you do get pulled away, you just come back. And um, I think I told you this when we were chatting on the phone, I wear a little bracelet, um, a little mala, which is uh, most of you have seen are like the Buddhist beads. I am not a Buddhist. So you don't have to be a Buddhist or any type of spiritual believer in one way or the other to do a, a strong mindfulness practice. But I have a bracelet that just says, be here because it is so easy to be somewhere else, right? To, to wonder what time you have to pick up your kids and wonder where you are um, when that summary judgment motion is due. And, and you've got nine things that are late for clients and it's so easy to get pulled away um, professionally and personally. So understanding that, that mindfulness is simply being where you are without judgment and the without judgment piece is critical. And I think that kind of would be a good segue to kind of talk about how this intersects with, you know, some of our professional duties, because one of the first duties from the canons of ethics is that in our professional duties, we should be competent, prompt, and diligent. And then there's a million definitions out there for diligent, but one of them is basically means that you're working in an actively and fully engaged manner. And that is almost completely in tune with what a mindful, you know, practice of law would look like. Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, lawyers are, 
Lawyers are extremely good at being mindful. When we are in trial, um, rarely are we thinking of something else outside of the trial, right? I mean, we do have a, we have a really good ability to focus on what's happening, what the witnesses is saying and what your client is writing to you next to you. I mean, you're in the moment. You would never be checking emails while a witness is, is testifying. Um, you would never be, you know, writing a summary judgment motion for a different client when you're in trial. So we know how to do this. We know how to focus, particularly trial lawyers. Um, the ticket is taking that out. And if you are, excuse me, taking that out of the courtroom. So when you're um, multitasking, which I don't mean to make that sound like, I mean, sometimes that's a necessity, but when you're billing a client and working on a project that they have paid you good money to complete, you certainly need to be focused and in the, in the project at the time, which is our professional obligation, right? If, I think we are not diligent if we are letting one client's timer run as we do something else for another client or even are distracted by another client. And it takes some pretty good discipline and no one is perfect. I mean, it's going to, you have to do the best that you can, but um, clients deserve that attention to detail. Well, one thing I've noticed, and, and this is part of my problem that like I talked about the distraction is when I first started practicing, I hadn't gone straight into law, um, gone into building houses. And uh, so it was a real learning process for me. Um, and I was, you know, constantly reminded that like, you want to be prompt in your communications with uh, your clients. And then, you know, it got to the point where, you know, a lot of lawyers were giving out their cell phone numbers or, you know, it almost became like lawyer, this expectation got built up that, you know, like if an email hasn't been responded to in five minutes, it's not prompt. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think that that's accurate at all. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has become a problem for a lot of lawyers. And I can't imagine how hard it is for young lawyers who actually grew up, you know, with cell phones in their hands. Uh, I mean, what advice would you give, especially to those younger lawyers who are maybe having problems getting out of like the, I would call it like a multitasking mode, but then I would also call it like almost over connectivity and the desire to like instantly respond to and please that client. Mm -hmm. Well, our, our clients are demanding that more, right? So it is hard to come out of that. They know that we have um, a smartphone, most of us, and um, get an email or a text or um, even, you know, even if we're out of the office. So um, I think that I think that don't be afraid to put notifications on your phone that you're not going to, you know, or on, excuse me, auto replies on your email. Um, because a, you know, a client deserves a good response, not an immediate response. So if you are distracted and, and sometimes if I, if I can't even get to, um, a client right away, I will say, I received this, I will review it and get right back to you. Even if it's just that type of response, um, rather than trying to shift your focus and answer their question immediately you know, say, I, I got this, I, you know, acknowledge it, um, and say, I will get, get back to it and make sure that you do obviously, but the, the distracted lawyer is not the competent lawyer. And 
no one is, no one, no one wants to pay for legal advice that is half-assed, right? And if you are a distracted lawyer and you're doing 9 million things at a time, that is half-assed legal advice. That's a technical legal term. I agree 100%. <laughs> and I, I really like that. And I mean, one thing that I've done um, that just kind of happened that uh, I've shifted my practice primarily to personal injury and workers' compensation, um, in part because I found that uh, in my last regular hourly billing rate, I think it was around 275 for like business clients. But I found that like somebody's going to be paying that kind of money. And I know a lot of lawyers in the state are up over 400 now. They think that in exchange for that money, they want that instantaneous response. And I really wasn't willing to go there. And what I found is like with my personal injury clients or my work comp clients, it's generally their first experience in the, with the legal profession. And I can really set the communication guidelines. Like I let them know that, you know, I try to just check my email twice a day. So you're not going to get a response right away. Don't give out my cell phone because I, I just don't want it out there. And, you know, they understand kind of like, if it's a real emergency, call the office. And if not, you know, then you, this is when you can expect responses. But then I explain to them basically that when I'm working on their stuff, that's what I'm doing. Or when I'm talking to them on the phone, I'm talking to them. Or if I'm writing their email back to them, that's all I'm doing. And I think that that really helps them understand that, like, when they have my time, they have my time. But when they don't, they have a guideline of, like, when I will respond. Mm -hmm. I'll generally get an email back at around three to four if I write you an email. Or, you know, Justin likes to return phone calls in the two to four in the afternoon time because that's when it works for my schedule. And so that's been really helpful with having the clients be happier, but also taking me out of that instant feedback loop. And that, that's really, um, that's really excellent. I have not been able to be that disciplined with, with setting boundaries, but that is, that is a really fantastic method. I, I, the one thing that I do is I prepare my clients when I will be gone and out of email reach. So if I'm going to be backpacking for a week, I let them know I will not be reachable for this time period. Um, if you have an emergency, you know, here's who you call. Um, and not a single client cares. They totally understand that, that you are not going to be at their beck and call while you are backpacking. And I should say not a single one. Most, most clients do not care. And, you know, that's a boundary that I set, but I, I prepare them for, I'm not going to be able to get to this right away. And that was another thing of just not, you know, I, they know, my clients know, um, at least I hope they do, that um, they do have my cell phone, but I, that doesn't mean they're available to me 24-7. That I'm available to them, excuse me, 24-7. Um, please don't abuse this, but if you need to talk to me on my cell phone, I don't mind. And I haven't had a client ever abuse it. They don't call me at three in the morning. They don't text incessantly until I respond. Um, most people are very respectful about that. That's, that's really wonderful to hear. Because I definitely, one of the main reasons that I got away from that was I had got involved in some transactional stuff, which I didn't normally do. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd have 
text at like 7 30 9 o'clock on a saturday and i'm like i'm just not gonna I, that's the last thing i want to think about work mm -hmm. is when i'm trying to relax and so it's nice to hear that with the proper kind of like ground rules and setup that you know you can get that to work well i i think that's the flip side of it right if if um, we are on vacation and it is our decompression time and our family time, we shouldn't be getting, we should not be uh, responding to legal stuff. I mean, I suppose there's, you know, there's the um, emergency from your firm or, or whatever, but um, I try to be, when I am on vacation, I try to be fully on vacation and not do the, the legal stuff because if, if, if you're, constantly working, which of course I've had those working vacations. Um, but if I truly want to decompress, um, one of the ways that I do it, and I learned this from Judge Blumel, is if, I, if I'm if i backpacking, it's one thing, I don't do this, but if I'm gonna be at, you know, at um, an Airbnb in Hawaii or Mexico, and I know I'll have some Wi-Fi, I schedule a time, if I have to be responsive, I schedule a day and a time where I will respond to emails. And that's it. From eight to nine, wherever I'm at, I will check my email box. And that actually helps me not worry about what's in my email and piling up while I'm on vacation. Um, I learned that from, from Judge Blumel and it, it's helpful. I mean, it doesn't work when you're out of completely out of cell service, which is actually quite beautiful because you can't worry about it. You don't have cell service when you're backpacking in the Wind Rivers. And I try to do that once a year where I'm absolutely untethered. But if you do have to take your laptop or take your phone for emails, I mean, then schedule a time where you'll be focused on the email responses or whatever, and then the rest of the time you're enjoying your vacation. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing that you just said that's probably as applicable to many older lawyers as it is younger lawyers, but you really deserve and need that time like to be fully on vacation because we are in if you go by like suicide and drug addiction, drug addiction rates, we're in the highest stress job, you know, in the United States, or at least in the top three. Mm -hmm. And if you're not giving yourself that time to actually, you know, basically mindfully be on vacation, you're, in my mind, you're a ticking time bomb. Like whether it's your heart or your brain, you know, something's going to give out long before it should if you're not regularly decompressing and just getting out of that stressful environment. I don't know what the current statistics are and um, someone like Mark Gifford or Merritt Fredrickson might know this better, but you know we have a profession that has a profound level of alcoholism and drug addiction. We have a, we have a profession that has a profound amount of suicide as, as compared to other uh, professions like doctors, um, accountants, what have you. So it is, there's gotta be something that we can do to combat that. And I think mindfulness is one piece. Um, the concept of mindfulness is being being in the moment, being in the experience that you are having with, with no thought toward the future, no regret about the past. It's just you are enjoying or reveling or suffering, whatever it might be in, the, in that moment. Um, because if, if you're constantly thinking about what's ahead and what's behind, then you never enjoy what's happening right there or not even enjoy or you never tackle the issue that you're facing or um, answer the question that is being asked of you even that simple because you are constantly thinking about something else. Well, it's, I like the way you said that because, you know, the common definition of 
anxiety and depression is, you know, depression is living in the past and anxiety is worrying too much about the future. And that's really what's going on if you're not actually just focused on what you're doing. Your mind is going to go to usually one or two of those places, especially if you're practicing law. And I want to make clear, the mind is going to wander, right? Sure. You are going to have some anxiety about the future. You are going to have, um, you know, some regret or, or, you know, reliving some of the past. The, you know, I, I almost feel hypocritical in talking about this sometimes because there is no way that I am perfect in this practice. And it is not an end goal. It's not an end zone that you try to reach so that you have a perfect, you know, transcendental medica- meditation practice and you reach enlightenment or, or, you know, whatever the yoga Sanskrit talks about, but it's an acknowledgement that the mind has wandered or that you should come back to the present, not judge it, not trip over it, not beat yourself up over it. You know, the script that we have internally is pretty harsh. We're pretty harsh on our own selves. So just letting, letting understanding that you have to shift back, acknowledge where you went and, and come back to the present. It's, it's not a finish line. It's not something that you all of a sudden get and then you're there. At least in my experience, maybe some, you know, maybe the Dalai Lama has reached the, that sort of full enlightenment stage, but it, for the, for the rest of us mortals and humans, and it's, it's something that is practiced all the time. But if you set yourself to practice it, whether it's through yoga, whether it's through your morning run, whether it's through sitting in Lotus with, you know, with your fingers in, in a certain month or in a certain, um, position, then that's it. I mean, that is, that's it for you. And I, I think lawyers, at least my concern was, I don't have time for this. I don't have time. When am I going to find time to, to sit down for 20 minutes and meditate? And there are many days when I do not feel like I can do it. But even if you do for three minutes, even I had a, be- I had a beautiful um, yoga teacher in, uh, she lives in Denver and I took some yoga training from her and I still come back to yoga training with her. And she talks about that even a minute, even one minute matters. Even one minute of stillness and silence and breath can make a difference. Well, I think, you know, that's the key too, I think that I would like to reinforce is everything, you know, it's like you're, you're building a habit or a muscle almost. And it's kind of like you wouldn't start out running by running 27 miles the first day, unless you're some kind of savant runner, Mm -hmm. you're going to start with half a mile or a mile. And then, you know, you'll probably go through phases where you're like training for a race and you're super on it. You're eating really good and you're doing all your training exactly right. And then you'll run your race and all of a sudden you'll, you know, you won't run for four weeks or whatever. And I think it is, Mindfulness is a practice, just kind of like the practice of law. And if you're consistent with it, you're going to have a bunch of ups and downs. You're going to continue to make the mistakes you made in the beginning, but you're going to build this practice that will become more and more ingrained. And then you'll start, you'll be like a runner. I know lots of people who run who can't miss their lunch run. You know, I'll see them out in the park mm-hmm. walking the dog and it's 70 mile hour wind and 10 degrees out and they're running. And I mean, I know that that didn't happen the first year they ran. And so I think that the practice really builds on itself, just like becoming a better lawyer, or more knowledgeable lawyer. It's something that grows with you. 
I think when you start to develop those habits with Justin, it sounds like um, you're much better at it than I am. But I notice when I let my habits go, similar to, you know, if all of a sudden you stop working out or if you stop eating well, it manifests itself in your body. So when you let a meditation practice or just even a simple mindfulness existence, if you let that lapse or go, um, or if I do, uh, I'll speak for myself, I notice it in my body, my sleep suffers. Um, I'm a horrible sleeper. And when I don't meditate, it, it's even worse. Um, and when you, and, and when I don't, and th so then I sleep worse. Like it, it, it gets worse, right? It's like a cycle. You, you get more out of shape, you get fatter, you get slower, all that kind of stuff. Same thing with mindfulness. You, you don't, you don't, um, you notice, you miss and you notice the, the lack of that in your life. And I just last night I was, um, I woke up at three and was distracted. So I immediately got to my phone, which I try to put my phone outside of the room. I've not been doing that lately. And, um, it, it, I immediately fell into the habit of scrolling and, and I, I caught myself doing it and turned off the phone, put it somewhere away. I mean, there's, we don't have to, just because we have fallen off of the mindfulness horses, I mean, we can't get back on it. And now I can recognize when I do that and recognize that it's affecting how I practice and it's affecting how I eat, my relationships, everything. I mean, if this, if the, if the breath is lost and I lost it during the pandemic, some of us just didn't have a, um, a super good pandemic. Lawyers got busier. Very few of us sort of got to just, you know, take it, take it off and learn the violin, right? Our clients were suffering during the pandemic, uh, particularly in my practice, in the family law practice, people were doing crazy stuff with their kids. I mean, it just, my practice has never been busier than during the pandemic. And so I've sort of replaced my mindfulness practice with gummy bears and gin, right? I mean that, and, but then you, then you find your way back. And I think that's the key. If you develop the habit and understand that it, it, you do better. I mean, there's actually, this is no longer like a sixties hippy dippy, um, kind of out there fringe thought. I mean, there is science. You can go to the Mayo clinic and the Mayo clinic will talk about meditation and the benefits of a mindful life. You can go to, there's podcasts on it. I love, um, did you ever listen to the Huberman lab? Um, he's so great. He's a, he's a, um, he's a brain expert. He's out of Stanford and, um, he talks about, he, he talks about all kinds of topics, but his meditation and mindfulness podcasts are just fantastic because there's, this is based in science. They are finding more and more research and it's not, you know, um, it, it, there's not a, not a, like a whole body of scientific evidence, but there's some very good evidence out there that this is an effective way to live. And it manifests itself in positive ways in your brain when they give MRIs and stuff and stuff. So well, ironically, I just, I had never heard of him until today, but he's like the latest guest on the most recent Tim Ferry show. So I was listening to, you know, I wasn't mindfully walking around the park with my dog. I was listening to his podcast. I can tell I'm already going to like him, but I'll definitely check yeah. out his stuff on, on mindfulness. And I, the part that I like about, especially what you're saying is like, it's a long-term solution too. Whereas like, I guess 
gym and gummy bears is a long-term solution too, but not nearly as long as mindfulness because your liver is going to go out and your brain's going to yeah. go out if, if that's your, you know, if that's your way to deal with stress. And you're going to be 50 pounds overweight if, if you're, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to add to that other than that's very astute in that, um, it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't, um, there's no side effect from it other than positive, positive. right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no downfall to it. There is no, um, you know, there's no side effect if you were to take a pill, you know, to help you sleep or whatever. Um, there's a concept called yoga nidra and you can actually, I do yoga nidra a lot for sleep and yoga nidra is a guided meditation essentially, but you drop, you really, I mean, they even encourage you just to fall asleep. And I use it to sometimes fall asleep when I am really struggling and, um, it's a guided meditation and you can get, I don't, I mean, you can Google, uh, guided meditation for, uh, guided meditation for pre-trial anxiety. And there is going to be a guided meditation online or on YouTube that you can listen to. I mean, this is, it, it costs nothing. And, um, the benefits are, are so, you know, it makes me wish that I were better at it. And I come back to it all the time. And I just want to encourage that you just don't give up, don't give it up, right? If you're not a, if you're not a good runner right away, you know, you gotta keep trying, you gotta keep running, you gotta keep trying to do it. And this is a similar thing. I think this is a good time to, you know, shift gears just a little bit and then kind of talk about how some of these you know, these practices will kind of change your, actually change your mind. And one of our jobs as lawyers is to be an advisor and to do that in a competent manner, you have to be objective. And uh, that can be difficult, I think, for an advocate. Um, you want your client to have a great case, you want them to win, but you also don't want them to blow smoke up their ass and have them be the most disappointed person in the world when the judge tells them, you know, like you knew all along that they, their position is wrong. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how mindfulness has improved your ability. Well, I'm assuming it's improved your ability to be objective. And I, I think the, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I think the key to being a really good lawyer is to listen to your client without judgment, which you use the word objective. Um, the mindfulness concept is, you know, what's what, what you're listening to them without judgment and you're listening to what you're not judging that they, um, shouldn't be as hurt as they think they are. You're not judging that they are handling their divorce wrong, or you're not you know, you're not you're listening to them without judgment and, and, or, approval, right? I mean, you were saying you don't want to blow smoke up a client's ass. You also don't want to poo poo everything that they're going through, right? Neither extreme is appropriate. And a lawyer who is, has a mindful in the moment sense of being will listen to that and will not pass judgment on it and will not, or won't bolster it up because you know that that's what the client wants to hear. I have never met a client who wants you to tell them what they want to hear. They don't now they may not like what you have to hear about when they're but they don't want something that is untrue or poor advice because it's based on on something that is inaccurate or or judgmental um so yeah i i don't know if i answered your question really well but i really 
listening to a client and addressing their problem without judgment, with objectivity, with the understanding that this is happening to your clients and they, regardless of what they are going through, it is not you to judge or bolster. It's for you to understand, address in the moment. And in the moment, I mean, while you're, you know, not in the exact moment that you're answering email, I mean, understanding the problem in the, in the moment, what your client is going through and then giving advice based on that. And anything else, I think anything else just is not what we have that, that anything else does not track with our professional obligations because we are not supposed to be cheerleaders. We're advocates. Sure. Zealous advocates, but that doesn't mean we have to give advice that is bad in order to please a client. There's a huge difference. Agreed, 100%. Yeah. And kind of going back to that, because that definitely answered the question in part, but one of the things that I wanted to explore with you too is like, I've really ramped up my meditation practice over like say the last three years or so. And it's become much more prevalent even in like my yoga practice. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the exercises that you can do when you're meditating is it's just literally focus on the in-breath and the out-breath. And then one of the things that most of the, you know, the guided meditations on it will encourage you to do is, you know, because you can't just do that, or at least I can't. Like, and the more I think about it, the more thoughts I have. But one of the things that it encourages you to do is to just let a thought come into your brain, acknowledge it, and then go, let it go away without doing anything more than that. What I've found over like these last three years is I've become so much more empathetic um, to both clients, but even like judges. Mm -hmm. you know, I used to be like, oh, you know, how can he or she get it that wrong or whatever? And as I've done this practice, I've realized, you know, like, well, that's a really hard job because usually it's a gray area. We wouldn't have jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's two, you know, usually highly intelligent, competent people who creatively thought of an argument of why their client's right. And then the judge has to sort through that. And so I feel like I've been able to gain, I guess I, it seems to me like I feel like I can more objectively look at it. And even though I'm empathizing with people, I think I, I, I can see it more objectively. Like, I think there's still terrible decisions, but most of them are kind of like, wow, that could have gone either way. And the, the judge had a hard decision or, you know, this is my client's predicament. You know, objectively, what are the, what are the solutions considering, you know, what they're going through? And that's been a place where mindfulness has just totally changed kind of my practice and, and how I interact with both clients and then how I react to, you know, decisions that we get from judges. Because we all get ones that, mm -hmm. you know, our case goes down in flames or we win a big case. And, you know, yeah. it kind of takes the roller coaster out of it. Or it started to for me, for sure. Yeah, I think that's, um, I, I sometimes wonder how much, of that comes with age and wisdom. Um, now that I'm over 50, there's a lot, I just have a lot more, a lot more understanding of the human condition and what people are going through. I hope I, hope I do. I certainly um, can be judgmental on my bad days, but I do think that some of it comes from being more mindful and when you were talking about the breath, um, that, you know, don't, don't, um, 
don't underestimate the power of sitting for a minute, even in your office chair with all chaos and all hell breaking loose and breathing in through the nose and out through the nose deliberately for a minute. I mean, it is, um, it can reshape how you are facing a problem. It can reshape if you are feeling out of, out of sorts, just breathing. And I want to emphasize the breath through the nose. Um, and probably also with a diaphragmatic breath, is, am I saying that right? Right. Is so, um, yeah, you can feel the rise and fall of the whole trunk of your body rather than just up here in the chest, right? And the breath through the nose, in through the nose, out through the nose, that you can train yourself to do that. Now I do that out of habit. Um, I had to teach myself that in through the nose, out through the nose. And I heard this funny thing. I don't even know where I heard it, but the nose is for breathing and smelling. The mouth is for eating. Your mouth is not for breathing, right? I, have you heard that before? Absolutely. Um, for some reason, mouth breath is particularly an inhale. Um, and I don't know if there's science behind this. This might be all anecdotal. There's tons of science. Okay. Um, I was going to say, it might be anecdotal bullshit, but it works for me because in through the nose, out through the nose makes a deeper breath. You are feeling yourself fill up more. And a lot of us never even use that bottom tier of our lungs. If you breathe through the nose, you get a deeper, more full breath. And it's hard if you have allergies or if you're congested or something. But now I, um, when I drop into a meditation or drop into yoga, I will breathe only through my nose and it matters. And if you can train yourself to do that, that also is pretty, that you're mindfully breathing from one spot. So you're not panting out of your mouth, right? When you get nervous or when you get tired or when you get stressed. And this is, I'm in no way would it ever sound like I'm an expert in any way on this, but there's a phenomenal book out there called Breath by James Nestor. And he goes through a lot of the science of why it's better to breathe through your nose. And I'll just hit a few of the, the simple parts, but uh, um, so you've got a natural filter in there with your nasal hairs and the mucous membranes and everything. And so that helps you breathe in cleaner air. One of the other really significant things is like when you breathe in through your nose, the breath is pressurized. So when it enters your lungs, it's under pressure. Um, and then it also, that diaphragmatic breath engages your, I want to, I may be saying this right, but I think it's your parasympathetic nerve, mm -hmm. which actually controls a bunch of your stress reflexes. So it's, it's basically been scientifically proven that if you, you know, stop what you're doing and breathe, you know, with your belly basically um, and your diaphragm through your nose, you will lower your stress level like immediately. Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and there's, I don't have any citations to it, but there's a lot of science to it. And uh, there's even a lot of professional athletic teams that are now doing all, all of their training with like special tape over their mouths. So they're forced to breathe through their nose because it's that much better. Well, and there's even like, if you find yourself to be a mouth breather at night, which many people are, yeah, that's, um, I've never had, I don't know if I breathe out of my mouth or not at night, but there are professionals that recommend you put a piece of tape over your mouth when you're sleeping even. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. And I, you mentioned the, the breath from the, in the diaphragm. I prefer that it, so a lot of us that grew up in the eighties and nineties, right. We were taught to suck it in, suck in the, you know, suck in our gut. So releasing that, um, core can sometimes be an antithetical to what we have 
learned in, in posture, right? It was suck it in, sit up straight. And instead of thinking of that, I think of the body as expanding like one of those breathing machines in a hospital or like an accordion, right? It's, it's like a 3D, rather than just the stomach rising and falling, it's sort of a full pulse of the whole body. So your whole cavity is filling up. Um, I even sometimes when I teach yoga, have people lay in child's pose or on their stomach and try to breathe into the back of their lungs. Very so um, it's more, rather than just a stomach breath, it's more of a full core fill up. And I think that, and, and then you can still keep your core engaged. You can still keep your bandhas. I don't know if you've done any research on bandhas, but the bandhas are certain locks in yoga in the body. So there's a throat lock, there's a root lock, there's a stomach lock. Oh, wow. And you can still keep that sort of core engaged, but engaged in this breath. And um, actually the more the core is engaged, the better you can control the breath. And so you don't have to sort of let it all go and just, you know, let the stomach pull, right? It's more of a, of a conscious, um, I can't think of the right word, but it's a, it's a pulse. Like if you would see something grow, a, a balloon blow up and deflate. I like that analogy better than just a rise and fall of the stomach. Oh, that's part of it. That's no, part of it. And I think, and I, that definitely really helps to clarify. And I think for me, I think of it as a belly breath because before I was such a heavy like shoulder and chest chest breather, yep. breather that I don't have to worry about. Those are still going to engage even when I do the belly breath. Um, but for me, that was a way of shifting that focus from like the chest down and then I think this is also pretty cool that, you know, the lungs are just basically sacs. So we have all kinds of breathing muscles all the way from our stomach up to our neck that help to expand those sacs of air. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. It's like your whole torso breathes. It's not just one area in particular. Well said, well said. And I'll try and see if I can include some links to some of these books, but if you anyone wants to learn more about breath or breathing and breath, like the book by James Nestor, Breath, I can't say enough about how fascinating. I have it on my um, nightstand with 500 other books that, <laughs> that I stress about not reading every night. Right. Right. <laughs> I, and I would recommend a book. I, I have, like I said, I am sort of a, um, addicted to books that I like to pile up and try to read. But the, I brought this book, The Anxious Lawyer today um, with me because it, it actually is sort of how a beginner lawyer, and it's specific to lawyers. I don't know if you've ever read it. it it's it just is like, it's an eight week, um, how to, how to meditate, how to start a meditation practice. And, um, uh, you know, I, some of it resonated with me and some of it did not. Um, they encourage like a journaling. Journaling can be a very meditative process. People really, really dive into journaling and how meditative it is. And I am, um, I can journal, but it kind of stresses me out. So it's not as meditative for me to journal as it is for others. Um, I get more meditative effects from movements like yoga or a nice walk or a run. Um, but so if, if there's something in here that doesn't resonate, you just leave it, right? You don't say, I need that. And I have to try to stress myself out to do it. It's a tool. And this, The Anxious Lawyer by Gina Cho and Karen Gifford, it's really sort of a good how to establish a, a, um, a meditative practice while you're a lawyer. So it addresses a lot of things that we address as lawyers. It's really a good book. Very cool. And I'll send you the link so that you can link it to this.
We hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it constitute a significant portion of the IT team. It may or may not happen. But... I get it. I get it. So, and this is another element, but I, I think it all kind of dovetails in. But I'd like to talk about in, in a little more detail about the zealous advocacy um, portion of being a being a lawyer and, and why mindfulness is necessary in that. And then I thought an interesting point to start off with is I don't, I don't think a single lawyer, and if you're not a trial lawyer, I'm sure there's an analogy, but there's not a, a trial lawyer in the world who would um, sit there with their laptop open and emails, notifications mm -hmm. clicking and like some YouTube video going and try and argue in front of, you know, Judge Johnson, I guess, unless they wanted to potentially be the first person to go to jail in a long that's time. That's right. That's right. Judge Johnson's court. Um, but, uh, I mean, he's one of the nicest people. I don't think he sends many people like that. But, you know, that's the kind of behavior that would probably end you up in jail. I mean, no one questions that. Like, everyone's like, trial, of course. Everyone knows I'm in trial. My email says it. I've let everyone know for six months that I'm going to be in trial and, and no one's allowed to bother me except for my spouse for half an hour a night, right? Mm -hmm. So we all take that approach. And yet so many of us, me included, like can't write a brief for two hours without checking my email, checking something else, you know, looking something up. Why do you think we can give such a priority to trial, but we can't recognize that like, that brief deserves that exact same level of focus. Or the phone call with the client deserves that exact better, the meeting yeah. with the client deserves that exact level of focus. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question because that's why I mentioned at the first part of this, lawyers can do this for the most part, particularly trial lawyers, because we do it when we're in trial. Again, no one would you would no one would ever check their email while a witness is being questioned. No one would ever do that. No one would ever have their email um, notifications ding while we're in trial. No one would have their cell phone on in trial. Unless so, they want to go to jail. Right, unless they want to be held in contempt. Right. Um, so we know, we know how to do it. And I don't know why we don't do it better in our other facets of life other than, you know, humans are imperfect and we do the best that we can when we can do it. But I think establishing the habit. I, you said the word habit, and I don't know if you've read the book Atomic Habits. It's fantastic. I agree. Um, it has helped me establish a lot of healthier habits, um, which I wish I had done in my 20s and 30s, right? Me too. Of course, too. Of course that is a, that's where the mindfulness game comes in. You're not supposed to regret the past. And it, it, whenever you come to it is when you were supposed to come to it. And so it, it absolutely is fine. But if you are... To be a zealous advocate, we talked about this a little bit before, um, you have to be paying attention to what the hell is in front of you. And you have to take the steps necessary to be able to fill that obligation to your client. And if you are not in the moment for regardless of the legal task that you're performing, I, I think that you are not giving that client their just reward or their just attention, but you're also violating the rules of conduct because if you are, how can you be a zealous advocate if you are not um, paying attention to what you're advocating about or what you're writing or what you're talking about and giving distracted legal advice is not, that's not 
advocate. That's not an advocate. That's a, that's an, um, I don't even know what the word would be. That is, uh, an observer who gives off the, off the cuff advice. And I've been, I've been thinking about this for a while because, uh, it's something that I've recognized for a long time. And I think part of it is, is our ego, right? Because I can still remember being like a young lawyer and, uh, you send out an email and I started on my own. So I had very, very small cases for like the first year or so and probably didn't even take a deposition in the first two years maybe, but um, you'd get the email back and it'd, it'd be like, I'm out in depositions for like, um, um, I'm out in depositions for like three or four days. And, and I'd just be like, man, it'd be so cool if I could ever, you know, get to take a deposition. And so I like gave it like this false, uh, sense of importance or, you know, especially you get an email back and not a responder that someone's in trial and you're like, oh my God, that's got to be the, the coolest lawyer ever, you know, because I was so far away from that. And I think I just, over the years, built up this hierarchy of like what was cooler or better or more important. And then, you know, with the time to reflect and everything, it's like, well, you're not going to win that trial if you don't pick up that important piece of information when you're talking to your client, right? Mm -hmm. Like you may be distracted and absolutely miss the linchpin to your case all because you were didn't pay attention to 30 seconds of what your client told you in the, you know, in the meeting where you're prepping, you know, for trial. Or you're um, distractedly looking through documents that you think are not going to be important and you miss the medical record that has the mistake. Um, I think, yeah, that, that's very profound. And I, I worry that, um, that busyness is now a badge of honor. I, I, I think it is. I mean, I think a lot of us consider busyness to be an attribute that we're so busy, right? You just talk about that at every, every cocktail party that we go to, every chamber of commerce, whatever that lawyers always go to, you know, oh, how are you doing? I'm busy. Oh, I'm busy too, right? You know, it's just, it's almost expected of us to be so busy. And that lends itself to some franticness, some distractedness, some feeling of, of chaos. Um, I remember one time I was speaking at a, a I, I asked a question in one of my yoga retreats and I said, well, you, and I was speaking to a group obviously of non-lawyers, right? I mean, we are a unique breed, uh, the lawyers. Um, but I was speaking to this group of, of people that were training to be yoga teachers. And I said, well, you know, when you get that totally out of control frantic feeling like you're not getting anything done and you've got so much to do that you're just racing from one thing to another, which I think a lot of, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say a lot of us sometimes feel that pull from everything in our oh, lives, especially absolutely. as lawyers. And they looked at me like I had four heads. I mean, they, it is not a normal state of human being to be completely frantic and out of control. And if our ego or whatever is driving us to that point, it is not a good thing. Um, that is not a mindful life. That's not a fulfilling life. That's why people get out of the practice of law, leave the practice of law. You know, there's a lot of lawyers that just, um, you know, I, I am so grateful for my job as a lawyer. And there have been times when I was not right. When it just felt like I got to get out of this. It's, it's a slog. The clients are needy and horrible to me. And you know, it's just the practice of law will just break you down. And when I shifted my 
you know, in my forties, when I sort of shifted to a more mindful life, and again, I'm not perfect and I'm certainly not the expert on this, but when I tried to make that mind shift, it mattered. I realized that, um, this is a very honored profession. This, you know, people are looking at us to help them and they are going through sometimes the worst, you know, they've been arrested. Their freedom is at risk. They're going through a divorce. They're losing their family. They have, you know, been severely injured and, and can't, you know, have a brain injury or, or have lost a limb or whatever. And, you know, it, I, the, my, the mindfulness practice that again is not perfect and I do the best that I can has definitely made me appreciate and be grateful for the profession that we've chosen, which is honored and important. And one of the you know pillars of our democracy, I don't mean to get all mushy, but being a lawyer is, is a really good thing. And a lot of us have struggled with, you know, geez, this is a slog. How do I keep doing this all my life? And, and um, I was one of those people and engaging in a mindfulness practice has made me a better lawyer. It's made me a more grateful lawyer for, I mean, we've put a lot of hard work into this, um, into this profession that we have. And um, there's a lot of people that just let that all go because they can't do it anymore. And it's made me appreciate the, the work that I've put in, appreciate the, the tough job that we are doing and appreciate that we are trying to help people. And we can't help them if we are distracted and um, chaotic and too busy and going, you know, have our thoughts all over the place. And, and I think that I, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I really think that that's the point of a mindfulness practice is that it made me a better lawyer. It made me a better person. I'm a better person than I for was sure. in my thirties, for sure. I'm a better person. I'm more focused on, um, and, and uh, granted I have, you know, my child is gone. So there's not a, a stress of getting into school. I mean, there's some stressors in life that also stress you out too, that are just natural. But, um, I, the mindfulness practice has been significant to me for me to be a better person, which ergo makes me a better lawyer. What I think I, you gave me a thought when you started talking about busyness. And I think, you know, if someone from, you know, had zero experience with the legal profession went to like a bar convention or something and just observed people, they would think that we were all in like some kind of busyness contest with mm -hmm. each other. Like who can be more busy? Who's more important in the busy arena? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, taking it right back to the ego, which I think mindfulness helps remove from a lot of equations. And uh, I always like the Thomas Jefferson quote that uh, hard work doesn't equal being busy, basically. And I think the hard work is the work that you get done when you're focused. And what I've found, this is definitely purely attributable to a mindfulness practice is and some good books on, you know, kind of like time management and stuff, but I really got like 20 to 25 hours of really good productive time a week. And I've just accepted that. Mm -hmm. And so that's about how much time I'm in the office, but I, I, I'd like to think that I'm getting much more done than when I used to be in there 50 or 60 hours a week um, because I'm not just busy. If I'm there, I'm going to just be there to do focused work. Um, and that's been a huge shift. And I think 
getting to the point where I'm comfortable saying that to other lawyers, that took a long time because I was, my ego was like, you're in last place in the business contest, right? Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, I'm solving more problems for my clients. I'm doing better work and I'm happier at home and with the rest of my life. So I'm like, I don't want to be the winner of the business contest. I think like that's a, a very hollow victory that probably means that you're the, you're the spouse who's at home and your, your husband, your wife is talking to you for four minutes and you've been cooking, but the whole time they're talking, you've been reviewing like how you're going to reply to a summary judgment motion. Like, and you literally have no idea what they said. And yeah. they finish and you look at them like, what did you say? And the reason I know that is because that was me before I kind of found a mindfulness practice and decided that I didn't want to be in the busyness contest anymore. And, I, you know, it's good to have a partner that, um, you know, my partner will call me out on it. Um, he'll say, you know, where are you? Know, where are you? Um, and we, we have this thing in our pocket all the time. And, and I am one of the worst offenders, but the, the concept of needing to be informed and it's not even a bad thing. Like it's not, I'm not even talking about social media, but you know, I, turn off your notifications from the New York times, turn off the, um, turn off the ding for your text messages. There's hardly a text message that comes in that you need to answer immediately. Right? No one, I, I don't expect that from the loved ones in my life, unless it's an emergency. And if it's an emergency, I'll call. Um, I don't know. I, I have had to really change um, my phone habits. And this has nothing to do with anything that we were talking about today, but changing that damn phone habit and being more mindful about your phone use is a game changer. I think that's everything to do with what we're talking about. Today. I, I fall off this, I walk the plank of this pitfall all the time. Um, in fact, I, when I wasn't sleeping last night, I reached for my phone. And, you know, what could be worse than shining a light on your face and, you know, um, than get to getting back to sleep? I, I, don't, I don't know why we do it, but we are obsessed with our phones. We're obsessed with watching, with binging what we watch now. Um, and it's part of our culture. And we just, as long as we're mindful about what we're doing, none of that is bad. It's just when does it happen and acknowledging that, you're, that you are going to read the New York Times now, right? I mean, that's a good thing to stay informed and read the New York Times. And, but, but there you are, you're in the moment, you're reading the New York Times, you're not reading the notifications as you're talking to somebody else. I don't know, it, I'm not articulating that very well, but dropping in, Looking at social media is fine. If you're looking at social media in the moment, digesting what you're doing, right? Noticing what's happening and then moving on to the next thing. If you're mindlessly scrolling or you're mindlessly binging Netflix, um, you're not getting the benefit of taking that information in if you're watching you know, a show that's really good. You wanna be able to enjoy that show. This is not an important part of life, but, um, or you wanna be able to digest the political article that, that you're reading in the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And if you're trying to do that while you're talking to your partner, while you're cooking dinner, while you're listening to the podcast, you're not being mindful about any of them. And so you're not able to enjoy any of it. And I think that dovetails in really well. And I can give a couple examples of, I, I just call them systems, but they allow me to be more mindful. Like, and for me, Apple News is like my crack. Mm -hmm. 
So like I've been off of it now for four months and I hope that I don't ever go back. And it, and it wasn't even affecting me at work, but it, it become like the pandemic gin, you know, mm-hmm. like it was get off work and start scrolling for, you know, half an hour or an hour and, and read all these stress inducing articles. Cause you know, in Apple news, it's everything is stupendous or evil or about to be the worst, you know, yeah. even the snowstorm is like impending death now. So I, I mean, now that's been tremendous. And the only thing that worked for me is to, you know, get that off of my phone and my iPad, it's just gone. And then I, I haven't had email on my phone for at least three years now. And that's been huge. And what I've actually found is like a mindfulness solution to email. And this is probably the one thing that I have to repeatedly just keep going back to and struggle with. Very good about it in the mornings, not good in the afternoons, but what I like to do is get all my big projects done for the day by like 1030. And then I'll put in my headphones and turn on some music that helps me focus. And I'll try and just crank in a focused manner through my email. And I find that it makes me better at my email. And then my email isn't messing everything up because I'm doing it in a mindful way. Mm-hmm. But this is a rule that I fight with. Even then, most afternoons, I, the email like somehow stays open on my screen because I know I don't have any bigger projects. But uh, I think there are systems that you can that can be put in place that allow you to tackle those things mindfully. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's not about totally eliminating things, like you said. It's, it's, it's taking that mindfulness practice to social media. So you want to be on social media, well, actually engage with it. Do it, yeah. You know, like be there for half an hour or whatever. I mean, it's not that it's inherently evil. I mean, I think the evil of it is when it becomes literally an addiction, mm-hmm. like a dopamine addiction or a cortisol if you're enjoying getting stressed out and the, the little fights that my wife occasionally reads to me and I'm like, I can't believe someone can write eight paragraphs about this on a Facebook post, but you know, someone else wrote 12 in response. So I guess it's not completely crazy. Every once in a while I take a total social media break um, and I'm not a big social media person, but I do love to see, you know, what um, people are doing. I love to see other people's kids. I love to see their vacations. Um, I, I don't, I'm on Facebook, but I never look at it because I think that's, but um, being mindful about the use of it and maybe even once in a while giving it up. Um, a couple weeks ago, I, there, I didn't do YouTube. I didn't do anything and just for one week. And I got to tell you, I didn't miss it. Now I didn't keep it up, but I, you know, cause I do sort of sometimes feel like I'm out of the loop on the news, um, which I really, um, I like you know, news and politics and, and being in the know on that kind of stuff. So that was a little, but I didn't miss it. And things that are mindless are the exact antithesis of what a mindful life is. And if you're doing something mindlessly, scrolling, playing Wordle, um, you know, things that you're not fully engaged in, you're just doing it to pass the time, the podcast that's just playing and you're not really listening to it. Those are mindless, not mindful. And we all fall into it and it is something to just get back up and, and try it again. So we've talked quite a bit about the why of mindfulness and kind of how it looks, you know, when you're incorporating it into certain aspects of the practice of law. But I'd like to talk now about both, you know, how lawyers who don't have a mindfulness practice can bring it into their lives. And then uh, also 
I think we could each share kind of how it came into our lives. And that would, I think, make it a lot more doable because if you knew me as you did in law school, you probably put me pretty low on the list of the guy who's going to be like doing yoga and meditating a lot. So uh, maybe you could start first with, you know, kind of how you came to yoga, what the mindfulness aspects of yoga are, and then, you know, maybe take some of that fear and anxiety out for, you know, someone who's just thinks it's hippy dippy and, and, and can't possibly see, you know, what benefit would come from hanging out in a room and stretching, you know, cause that's what people think it is. It's only stretching for an hour. You know? Yeah. Well, and it can be, it right. can be just that. Um, how did I come to, so I started doing yoga pretty, I think I was 40. I mean, it was, it was not something I did a lot. Um, and I started out with really like, a, um, there's different types of yoga, but I started out with a, a vinyasa practice, which is a very sort of heart pounding kind of um, workout-ish kind of a practice. And then- Would that also be like considered like a flow practice? Yes, vinyasa flow. Um, vinyasa means you just start linking all those poses together in a, in a, in a movement. You might be sweating heavily by the end of the yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah. And I went to a hot yoga studio, so that was even more, and, um, I did it for the physical benefits, but what you, what you do in a yoga class is you breathe and the breath is very much a focus. And it started to make me feel better when I was breathing properly. And so I, then I just got, then I just sort of fell in. Um, and I took uh, some yoga trainings and I got certified to be a yoga teacher and I teach yoga. I don't teach it as much as I used to. Um, because I, I simply don't have the time. So I was becoming the person that was at the studio that always needed to sub because I was out of town for depositions or whatever. But I really enjoyed learning all about something I knew nothing about, but also just a better way to live. I mean, there, there was a time in my life where I just felt um, completely untethered, completely out of control. And... I, I found it in yoga. And then when I started to practice regularly, I noticed the, the physical and the mental benefits. Um, and my yoga practice is pretty sporadic, but I, I, what I want, what I thought and have learned subsequently is not true, is that when you meditate, you need a cushion and you need to be able to sit in Lotus and you need the, the Buddhist music playing and you need, you know, Everything has to be the certain way. When you practice yoga, you need a mat, you need a block, you need a, a certain place, you need a class, you need a certain kind of class. And all of that is just, um, I mean, doing just a couple of sun salutations in my office completely resets me. And I learned that I don't have to do an hour of vinyasa yoga at a hot studio a certain time. I can do 25 minutes of yoga in the morning and it has similar benefits. So I think if you, if you sort of release that, it's much easier to start down the road. And that, that's how I, I just felt untethered and, um, wanting something that was different and was, um, and that was more resonating with me in helping me cope with the practice a lot. Cause that, I mean, 
we can meditate all we want, but the practice of law is tough, right? I mean, it is not an easy thing. I, I use a quote in my class that we are a profession that is very difficult and, you know, as our doctors, right? But when lawyers go into court, we have someone who is fighting against us. Like we are in adversarial. Um, so I argue we need it more than, than other professionals, but um, the fighting was getting to me and I had to find a way to be able to continue because that is what we do. We, we advocate for one side, the other side advocates and it's tough. And so the, the yoga practice that I found and then learning all about yoga, which is more than just the asana, the movement, it, you know, there's, there's all kinds of limbs of yoga that there's eight, actually not all kinds. There's eight and learning about all of that. And one of them is the, the, what in Sanskrit is called the pranayama, the breath. It is so critical. And once I started sort of paying attention to my breath, then I could never go back. And that's, that's how I got there. And it, again, it's not always perfect. It's not an end, an end game. It's, it's a, it's a habit. It's not, it's similar to like, if you go on a diet and you lose a bunch of weight because of your healthy eating and your healthy habits, when you stop doing those healthy habits, what is going to happen, right? The weight right. is going to come back on or the, you know, the joints are going to get sore again and, and not function as well. So it's, this is a, is a similar practice, although I don't want to make it stressful. It, it shouldn't be stressful. It should be a reliever of stress. And so when I came to that, it just, Again, I, um, when I lose it, I feel it and I, I have to come back to it. And so that was got almost to like my next question that I was thinking about. Um, but, and I think you may have already answered this, but I wanted to kind of clarify this for people who are listening, but, uh, with your yoga practice, when did you first become aware of the mindfulness aspect? And then for you, um, and this could be different for different, you know, yoga flows or practices, but what is the mind, what are the mindfulness components of yoga? Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is, it is threaded throughout all of yoga. And I don't want to get too in the weeds about, um, about myth and, and yoga mythology and so forth, but the like I said, when I used to lay in Shavasana, which most of us who do yoga understand that Shavasana is the pose where you're on your back, your legs, you know, your legs are open, your arms are open, and it's the final pose. And when I would lay in Shavasana, that's when I would get most of my work done, right? I would sit there and I'm like, I'm not going to waste this time. I'm going to get my to-do list done. What do I need to do? And, um, and for those of you who don't know who are listening, that is not very yoga at all. No, in, in fact, that is the worst thing that you can do, right? Um, and this is when I was pretty new to yoga. And then, you, and then you just, as you learn to breathe more, and I think it is about the breath. I have read uh, that book, Breathe. I've read portions of it, and it's, it is fantastic. Um, is it breathe or breath? Breath. Breath, okay. Um, and I, I sort of lost the, the focus of your question, but... If you are practicing yoga, the poses and the movement are designed to make you drop into that pose and notice it and not wondering where, not worrying where you're going. What's the next thing? 
um, being mindful of where you are, not how it looks and the in and exhale of the breath, because you can't do some of the balancing poses without a good, strong foundation in breath. And so once you begin to bring your focus on the breath, and I don't want to be a nerd about that, but that is the truth. It is our life force. There is nothing more important, I would argue, than breathing. And once you sort of learn that in yoga, because a, a really good yoga teacher will cue the inhale and the exhale most, most of the time, right? Um, or remind you of it at least. And so once that, that makes you focus on what are you doing? The breath, if you focus on the breath, you are being mindful. And so that was the key. And when I first started meditating, I had to literally say to myself, now I'm inhaling, now I'm exhaling. And that, that established a habit. And, if, and sometimes I even come back to that. Like if I cannot clear the mind, which is not the right phrase, but um, if I cannot drop into a mindfulness spot, I do that. Now I'm inhaling on the inhale, now I'm exhaling on the exhale. And that little easy mantra can make me drop in. And that's literally what I had to do to be able to get the to-do list out of my head because that is not relaxing. If you are consistently and constantly, that was lending itself to my chaos, not to, it doesn't solve anything. I'm not, I'm not getting any work done when I'm in Shavasana. I mean, that, it was a ridiculous thought that I had to not be wasting that time. Like I wasn't working out anymore, so I'm not gonna waste this time where I'm laying here. And it, it was a game changer, that, that recognition of noticing the breath. And I don't know if, that, if that's how you found it as well, but. So for me, I think I started out, um, came to yoga initially just to deal with like excessive soreness and tightness from like exercising. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was the same way. I was like Shavasana. This is so boring. Why can't we just go, you know, we're done. It's 4.30. Let's go get a beer. I mean, uh -huh. why are we going to lay here for five to 10 minutes? And um, also being extremely tight, um, not flexible. And that's still a long journey that I'm on. But uh, sometimes in a yoga pose, um, when you're not very flexible and stuff, all you can think about is, am I really close to injuring myself? And you're so uncomfortable, you can't focus about anything else. So it probably, it took me years to get to the point where I could even just focus on the movement. Mm -hmm. And so part of my practice now when I do yoga is I might put on like my favorite, you know, like Sturgill Simpson album or something that I can really rock out to. And when I'm doing that part of yoga, I would say my biggest mindfulness component is I'm really just in the moment with the music, but then I'm focused on my body, like my positions of my body and things like that. Um, and other times I'll have like a completely silent practice where I'm more focused on my breath throughout. And I'll have that practice be like poses that I know are not going to really stress me and have me like shaking because mm -hmm. I'm so uncomfortable. It's so like that is a mindfulness component. But I'll tell you the biggest thing that changed my whole perspective about yoga, and I'd love to see some classes switch to this, but um, you know, my wife Jody. She doesn't teach, but she's got her instructor certificate. She just explained to me one time that like, originally the whole point of the yoga practice was just to get you ready to meditate. Mm -hmm. And that was like the big game changer, like Shavasana moment for me. So a lot of times my practice will look like 
40 minutes of yoga, maybe, or even last 20, you know, just whatever it takes to get loosened up, but also to get my mind right for like that 20 minutes of meditation. Mm -hmm. And that was like a huge game changing shift was to see the practice. You know, there's, I see a lot of mindfulness in it too, but I mean, it's also like an incredible way to set yourself up to make it a lot easier to get into that mindful state when you go to meditate. So, um, if you've ever attended one of my, you know, I teach, um, at the trial lawyers convention and I, I teach at other legal conferences, the, the bar convention. And when I very first sort of floated the idea that, that there, a yoga class could be ethics credit, um, people thought I was nuts. I mean, they, they just thought I was crazy. But if you think about the, the tenets of yoga, and again, I'm not going to get into the weeds and our professional obligations to clients, our rules of conduct, they mesh and our obligations to clients and our need to be focused on, on that when we're helping them. I mean, that is, they are so intertwined in my opinion. When I found that, you know, I, I did get it approved for CLE and ethics CLE and, and you can get that if you come to my class and we don't, we talk about one rule and that's our intention or I'll talk about um, all of the yamas and the niyamas, which is one of the, uh, one of the limbs of yoga, um, they are, they are um, a guide to how to live and they almost match our rules of conduct. And so when you come to my class at the state bar or at the trial lawyers conference, we'll have, a, we'll actually incorporate a rule or the rules of conduct into our flow. Um, sometimes better than others. It's not the easiest thing to weave in, but they are they are very aligned once you start to kind of um can you give an example that of one that you've used in a class um yeah there's a there's a concept in yoga about thoroughness um being completing the task being thorough and we have to do that as lawyer, right? That's a requirement for us to be diligent and competent, right? That's the same sort of thoroughness. So last year um, at the bar convention, we talked about, you know, thoroughness and finishing the job and doing it to um, completion, which is a tenant of yoga and is also, uh, it, and there's an interesting book called The Yamas and the Niyamas. And it, it's a, um, it's probably too deep of a dive for people who are not that interested in yoga. It's not a good read, right? It's a read that yoga teachers uh, take up, but that is where I, I teach from that book when I teach yoga at legal conferences, because if we, if we do these precepts in yoga, then we'll be better fulfilling our ethical obligations. I should have brought that book because it's, a, it's really actually fantastic. So, um, Okay, I just said a little. Well, and another another example would be um, there's a concept in the yamas about doing no harm, to to you know don't harm yourself or others, um, <clears throat> and that you know um, we are not supposed to make clients' lives worse. Um, we are not supposed to become part of the problem. We are supposed to be zealous advocates and solve the client's problems to the best of our ability. That's our ethical obligation by being diligent, by being competent, by not stealing their money, um, by not 
um, by communicating with them in a, in a manner that is um, informing them. All these things are examples of these tenets of yoga and they just mesh so well. And so if you come to my yoga class, you'll get extra credit. Nice. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, I just, I really like that because, you know, I think, I've, and I haven't heard it tied into yoga before like that, but I mean, I've always thought the first line of the Hippocratic Oath is some of the best advice to a lawyer too, you know, mm -hmm. first do no harm. And so I think that there's a lot of crossover there. I mean, well, and I think um, particularly in, I, I practice a lot more in the area of um, family law. Uh, I used to do a lot of personal injury as well, though. And, and you, you see these lawyers that get so emotionally tied up with their client, um, which I submit is not um, that is over advocacy. That is not a zealous advocate. That's um, an enmeshed person, right? And and I think that getting completely enmeshed with the client is a problem. And if you are not focusing and being mindful, that you can fall into that trap. You know, your problems become the lawyer's problems, and then you become part of the client. You become the part of the client's problem. Right? You're not I mean, objective. You're not objective. You're not um, looking at all sides of the case, and it particularly happens. It particularly happens in the personal injury and the divorce area. I mean, we can very easily get so wrapped up in our clients' problems that they become our own problem, right? Absolutely. And um, the mindfulness existence helps with that a lot. So, what advice would you give? And kind of like a little nuts and bolts on how to be um, prepared for a lawyer who's never gone to yoga who wants to try their first class, like everything from like, what do they need to wear? What can they expect? And, uh, you know, kind of like how to maybe eliminate some of the fear or anxiety about that first class. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a really good question because I think you need to try all different kinds. Um, I, I got into yoga, like the very first yoga classes I took were on YouTube. Like just what, what is expected and if you are in a in a good yoga class with a really strong teacher um it doesn't matter what you wear it doesn't matter that you look a certain way i mean most yoga teachers will give you alignment cues to help so that you're not injured but there's not a right way to do it and a good yoga teacher doesn't judge a good yoga, yoga teacher um is, is understanding of all that. And there are beginning yoga classes in nearly every community. And if you can't find one, there, there's so many resources on YouTube. There's so many apps. I have an app on my phone um, that I do pay for, but I find it worth it. It's called ALO Moves, A-L-O Moves. It's a yoga clothing brand, and you can find any level of yoga. Um, and I would try all different kinds. Go to um, a yoga class that maybe doesn't resonate with you. For instance, there are certain people who really resonate with the vinyasa, the heart pounding, the thumping kind of um, movement and sweating. And that was what I was driven to at first. And if you gravitate toward that kind of yoga, you probably need the exact opposite as well. So the yin yoga, right? The slow it down, the, um, the more peaceful, meditative, slow, stretchy, you need that too. And don't just gravitate toward one style of yoga. Or if you're real lethargic, 
um, and what we call in yoga to be uh, have kapha energy, where you know you're, you're sort of not the fast moving person. You're more um, low to the ground, and you're more grounded, and you're more uh, not sloth like, but you're just more. Um, things are more deliberate. Things are more slow. You need a, a faster yoga class to help you balance that life. And but first, just starting out, just try a bunch of stuff, and really don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you look like. Um, most yoga classes do not have judgmental people in them okay. and they, and they do not care what you look like. They're working on their, their posture and their breath and their, um, their betterment. And they're not judging you for what you look like or what you wore or whether or not you have the right mat. Uh, you don't need to go and spend a bunch of money. Um, even though I spend way too much money on my yoga stuff, I do, um, cause I like it and I, I want, um, a, a good mat. And some of those things are, do make you much more comfortable. Um, for instance, there's special mats for guys who people, I shouldn't say guys, pe people who are tall, right. You need a longer mat. You can find those. You can find, um, thicker mats. You can find mats that it's called a life form mat. And you can, um, it, it actually has spots marked out on the mat of where your feet should be and where your hands should be and where you should, you know, and I actually have a life on that. It's really helpful. Um, you'll notice if your toe is turning in and it might be hurting your knee instead of your toe pointing straight forward. So your knee is aligned, just those kinds of little things. It doesn't matter how it looks, but it doesn't matter how it feels. And if you're not, if you're having some kind of burning fiery, icky pain, that's not, that's not worth it. Don't struggle through that move the foot and figure out where it's a little bit more forgiving to you. And, um, yoga is fun. Like when I, when, well, when I teach yoga, I have a playlist that's fun. Like it's not your normal, like fountain sounding waterfall music with, you know, Zen kind of harps playing. Um, I kind of have an upbeat, fun playlist because I think yoga is fun. And um, I like to be sort of immersed in the music and not worry about how many times we do each thing and just have a little bit more fun. And it, there, there are serious yoga classes and you might gravitate toward that too, but I kind of like a fun, upbeat, sort of working through a kind of yoga class. I really like that. And focusing on always on the breath. As long as you are engaged in the breath, you're doing it right. I like that. I mean, and I would give, you know, I'd give even some more like nuts and bolts advice, but you know, definitely wear, I would say loose fitting comfortable clothes that you can bend all over in. And then if you're new, don't even worry about getting a mat. I mean, I've never been to a yoga studio that doesn't have mats and they get cleaned after every use. So it's mm -hmm. not like there's a kind of sanitary thing. And then, yeah, I think you got to try a bunch and, and find the one that you like to kind of get into it um, because that's going to be the easiest at first that, you know, if you really like the flow, then go with the flow for a while. Or if you really like the slow yin, go for a while. But I think what most people will find is that as the practice develops, you find that there's a need and a place for all these different practices in your yoga practice. Like I think everybody can benefit from some Yin yoga and everybody can benefit from some flows and it's it's not a I guess it's just not a static thing it's it's a very 
it moves with you and kind of grows with you. And, and there, you know, you, um, you can always get better. I mean, there's no, like I said, there's no finish line there. Right. You can always do something um, better. And I, I, we, we haven't talked about this, but the physical aspects of yoga, uh, they, I mean, that's huge too, right? I mean, the you build strength, um, flexibility, which again, um, we've all seen the people uh, who are aging and who no longer can touch their toes, no longer can, um, you know, their posture, their posture is hunched there. Um, they can't step up, right. Or step down and the physical aspects of yoga and opening up the hips and, you know, planting your feet and spreading your toes, so that your feet are healthy, um, opening the chest. Cause we, you know, we sit at a computer and, and, um, hunch all the time and look at our phone and drive. We're all hunched, right? So the concept of especially opening lawyers. the chest, yeah, especially lawyers, opening the chest, you know, sitting up straight, um, the physical aspects of yoga, which were not the topic that we were here to discuss, but my God, I mean, those are endless. They are endless. And none of us want to be the little old lady who has breaks a hip because her hips are so frozen and, um, you know, part of strength is also stability and flexibility. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the physical aspects of yoga, which we haven't even touched on are immeasurable. Well, let's, uh, let's kind of take this as the chance to go into the meditation aspect, because that's also a different area of mindfulness. But when did you kind of have your aha moment that maybe this Shavasana isn't the time to do the to-do list, but this is really the time to like, let my mind go and be mindful? I think it was yoga teacher training. Okay. Um, and understanding, because this was probably, um, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe it was just before I turned 40 or maybe, maybe it was just 10 years ago. Um, and I, I just was interested, I was interested in learning more about yoga because it was resonating with me. And I think that's when I learned the importance of mindfulness. It's not something that generation X has grown up with. We have had to find it. Um, you know, we're, we were not, I don't know. It, it, it was a little, um, it was not as popular as it is now. And it wasn't something that at least I was raised on. Like my parents did not practice mindfulness. They did not do yoga, not because they, it just wasn't available to them as much as it is to us now. And so now it's readily available and readily accepted. And we understand a lot more about the breath and the science behind it. And so when I started learning um, some of the aspects of the importance of breath and clearing your mind, again, it's not a clearing of the mind, it's focusing of the mind more. Um, that's, I didn't, I didn't learn it until then. And, and it takes a, you gotta do it to understand it. And when you do it, you won't go back. I, I just am convinced about that. Most people who learn, it's not hard. Um, I mean, it's not difficult. It is hard to, to, to keep doing it and, and develop a habit of it, but it's not a difficult thing. I mean, to sit there and breathe is not taxing, right? It's not something that is that, you know, it's, it's certainly not like playing a really good game of tennis, right? It, everyone can do it. It doesn't take any special physical ability or any special equipment or any money. It just 
takes a minute to sit and breathe. And when I started to feel a shift in my life from the, away from the frantic, which still crawls back in, by the way, it still creeps. Um, it's a practice. It's there a is practice. no perfection. <laughs> um, and, but when I started to notice that I could, I could do something about that, then I, that's when I shifted, but it took a while. I mean, your first yoga class, you're not going to be able to, to completely focus in Shavasana. You're just not, unless you've had, unless you've done it before. Well, I think it's definitely a generational thing. I mean, to me, meditation was like some hokey, you know, hippie thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd seen on a movie or something with a, a bell ringing and people in white robes. And, um, and yeah, and, exactly. And for me, my moment kind of came about, I mean, I've been a big Tim Ferriss fan for a long time, but I was reading one of his books on successful people and almost almost every one of them had a meditation or mindfulness practice. And it, yeah. at some point it just became like impossible for me to be like, okay, this can no longer be like um, this hippy dippy thing. And then um, one of the recommendations was to, you know, to get an app and, and try guided meditation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got the Calm app, um, which is, you know, I think you can get it for free for a week and then it's not very expensive after that. And, and in these guided meditations, they're kind of like, they take the pressure off of you. Just kind of like how earlier when we did the guided meditation with you, you're, you're kind of, you're talking. And so that's, my mind is able to follow your voice. And I'm not in this situation where, because, you know, I tried a few times to just meditate and, and think about nothing. And, and that's really a hard mm -hmm. place to start. And so I, I started with the call map and I probably mm -hmm. got to, just doing like five minutes a day of the guided meditation, but I was finding that it was really helpful, but I, I didn't commit to it. And then uh, think of advertising for Tim Ferriss, but I, he, had the, he had the show where he had Jerry Seinfeld on and like that guy's one of my heroes. I mean, I think he's one of the most creative and funny people mm -hmm. who's ever lived. And he's on there saying like, the most important thing I do in my life, my creativity is like, I do transcendental meditation for 20 minutes twice a day. And after I heard that, I was like, well, you know, if it's good enough for Jerry, it's good enough for me. And it took a while to get that to be part of my life. And even now it's like, generally it'll be 20 minutes in the morning. And if I do my daily wind down, like I'm supposed to, I'll, I'll have like a guided 10 minute meditation on the call map at night, just cause it's mm -hmm. easier. But hearing someone like that, you know, attributing it, basically what he said is like, normally the pin flows. And he's like, and I can just keep being creative, you know, for how much time a day I can. So whenever it stops, it's like I go back to the mindfulness practice. And hearing it from him, you know, it's just like, this is, that was the, my aha moment. And then once I start, I couldn't go back now that I've got it part of my practice. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. become part of my daily routine. And I think it's really very helpful. So I would recommend, you know, to anyone who wants to start that, start small and just start with something like Calm, or I think there's another one, Headspace, but they can, you know, get you on the path. And then once it becomes a habit, it, it works. I mean, at least it really works for me. It, um, it works, and there's science to prove it works. I mean, this is not just a sort of, we feel good because we do this. I mean, there is science that proves that there is a shift in your brain that happens when you live a mindful life. And when you, and, one thing that I, I mentioned um, 
meditation, it, it, it often helps if you are, if you have an unguided meditation. And by the way, a guide, there's guided meditations on YouTube for free. You can find it. Like I mentioned, yeah, you don't, have to, pay you don't have to pay for an app, sure. um, but you can. And sometimes the app has better series. And, and I really like the concept of the app too. But if you're just looking for something to try it out, YouTube is, I mean, you can find anything on YouTube, right. but um, uh, having a mantra and a mantra is like sort of um, in the first guided meditation that we did, you know, the mantra was, was calm and peace. Um, but you can even, like I said, I've done meditation where I just talk about inhale and exhale. Right. But you can, um, you can, anything can be your mantra. It can be, um, I am on the inhale enough on the exhale. It can be, I will be, and you exhale strong and courageous. I mean, it can be anything. And so you just inhale and exhale to that mantra. Um, and if that's all you do, that, that is great. I mean, that is, and it, and then if you get off track and something else comes into your mind, then you just come back and figure and come back to that mantra, come back to, um, there's a, a mantra in yoga that is just, I am, I am. And, um, I, the, the Sanskrit phrases is, um, escaping me right now, but it is simply on the inhale, you say, I, on the exhale, you say, am, and you do it to yourself. And even that level of sometimes a mantra helps. Like if you, if you have a guided meditation, if you have a non-guided meditation, a mantra helps just a little something that you, that you focus in on a a little phrase and not a long one, but I am brave. I am here. I am, I am whatever. Along those lines of just counting too, um, Mm -hmm. like you would on the end of the out breath, you would count one and then on the end of the in-breath, you count two. And, and you don't keep going up, you just keep counting one and two. And that was one of the early tricks that helped me get, I guess I would call it get past like the five minute mark. Because mm-hmm. that was always like, you know, I've been doing this for five minutes and it, when you start out at five minutes can feel like an hour. Mm-hmm. You're like this is five minutes, this is the longest five minutes of my life. And I found that that really helped. And then for, you know, I think we're really changing, like if the goal of your meditation is to, if you're dealing with a ton of stress, I think something just very similar to what we did, but if you just think to yourself, you know, you breathe in with peace and then you breathe out the stress. Mm-hmm. It could just be as simple as in with peace and out with stress and those breaths. But it's amazing what just one or two minutes can do. It sounds hokey. Um... It's, it sounds, you know, to someone who's never done it, it may even sound ridiculous. And, uh, but the science just shows that it's not. And, and it leads to, I mean, the benefits of meditation, we can talk about those ad nauseum, but I mean, it leads to physical, um, physical benefits, meaning reduced uh, cholesterol, reduced high blood pressure. Um, you know, the science is a little bit less strong in those areas, but there is science out there that shows that you can meditate for weight loss. You can meditate to help with your sleeplessness. I mean, all these things that, that, um, I mean, there's science out there to, to show that there are definite health benefits to it as well. It's not just, it doesn't make you happier. It can lower your rapid heart rate. It can reduce your blood pressure. It can do a lot of things with to, one breath. With the breath. One breath. Yeah. 
It's the truth. And I think for anyone who's skeptical, I think skepticism is super healthy and you know the basis of all science. But the, the most amazing thing is like you can just give it a shot with like three minutes, like give it an honest shot. Mm -hmm. I can almost guarantee you'll feel a complete shift in your mindset, your stress level, and everything. So I will admit to you, it's good that you do um, 20 minutes a day because the only way that I can do 20 minutes is in a guided class. Okay. So um, I, I, when I meditate, I can, I usually do about 10. Um, if I can't get in 10, I'll do one. I mean, but 20 minutes is really hard for me. I have to be in a guided class. So you're even further along that journey than I am because I, I found that to be really hard to sit there that long. Um, so I, I can do it when I am in like a, um, my law partner and I went to um, Shambhala. It's called something different now, but it's an ashram that's just outside of Fort Collins. And when I'm in that setting, I can meditate all day. But when I, it comes to me doing it myself, I'm not as good at it. So um, good for you for being able to do 20 minutes because I've got to be in a pretty structured place to do that. That's just my personality. And I've got to sort of get past that. And again, it's a journey. We're working on it all the time, right? Yeah, and before we do our final meditation, I would just talk a little bit about like part of what has enabled me to do that is we're lucky enough that we have an extra room, which is where we're actually doing the podcast. And one thing that I've learned is just being able to leave the yoga mat out. Mm -hmm. And then we've also, my wife on this really comfortable little stools that help, help me sit since I'm not very flexible, but just having that there has made it so much easier to, you know, take that from, you know, something I was attempting to something that's now become a habit that I can't even really imagine, mm -hmm. you know, starting the day without. So I think if you can, if you want to be more mindful and add that to your life, just put some little reminders or make it obvious to yourself that, you know, that's part of your life. And it doesn't have to be a dedicated room. I mean, you could just put a little bench to meditate on, you know, in the corner of your bedroom, just, mm -hmm. and just seeing in the morning would remind you, hey, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to meditate. So I think being human, it's always good to do whatever you can to make the good decisions easier because like every human, I'm super prone to making the bad ones. And so I just have to create the structures that make those good decisions more likely than the bad ones. Mm -hmm. So it's a really great point. Well, I, I think, you know, we're kind of about to the point where we could do a final sure. meditation and then, we could, you know, any parting thoughts that you might have for anyone would be great. So let's do a, that sounds wonderful. And thank you, Justin, for having me. Oh, um, absolutely. Thanks for coming over. I hope these, uh, I hope these resonate um, with people. So if you, we're going to do a meditation on gratitude. So um, as you find a comfortable seat um, or lay down, if, if you don't have a, you know, it, it is uncomfortable sometimes to sit cross-legged. So lay down if that doesn't, if sitting doesn't resonate. Feel grounded and comfortable in your seat. Get settled. Let your eyes softly close. Now, soften the face if there's any clenching. Soften the jaw. Let the eyes soften in their sockets. 
bring your focus and attention to the breath. And before you change it or judge it or manipulate the breath, just notice, just notice the in and out. Begin to make that breath more intentional and mindful. Let's focus on breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. On your next full exhale, take a breath in for a count of four. Hold it full at the top and then exhale slowly through the nose to the count of four. On your next inhale, start your, to bring your focus to just how lucky you are. Keep that four count breath as you focus on the lucky, lucky, lucky life that you lead. Bring your focus and attention to what you are grateful for. On each inhale, name something in your mind's eye of something that you are grateful for or someone. As you breathe in and out, think of at least three things. As you inhale, send extra gratitude to the things that have just come to your mind. When your mind wanders or thoughts come to something else, acknowledge that thought, observe that thought, and just let it go without judgment. Bring your attention back to the four-point breath and what you're grateful for. The only place you need to be, the only thing you need to do right now is practice the breath and drench yourself in this gratitude of the things that you brought to mind or other things that you are just completely grateful for. As you are inhaling and exhaling and acknowledging the gratitude, bring an internal smile to your mind. Focus on smiling as you're doing this. It doesn't have to be a physical smile, just an internal smile. Notice how this inhale and exhale breath and the mindfulness moment and the gratitude that you are soaking in brings a sense of happiness to you. Notice how you're feeling happier just by thanking people or places or things in your life. One more inhale. I am. As you exhale, grateful. Now let your eyes flutter open softly. You can finish your day with the sense of gratitude.
Well, that was pretty much a perfect in my mind. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was sure fun. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we'll see you at my yoga class. Oh yeah, I've been there before. Oh, we'll so. do more of this. <laughs> Very good. Sounds great. Thank you so much.